0: get up in ya your-
1: bottom of the night
2: Welcome to Musical Osmosis, where intelligent, dissonant thought meets melodic, euphonious reality. I am your musically magnanimous host, Nick Saucy one cat Source, broadcasting to you as always from the shadow of Hurricane Mountain, Tennessee. And I also want to introduce my percussively proficient co-host, calling in all the way from Charm City, Maryland, my pal, Odell. Odell, here we are, um, 15 minutes late, but we are finally up and running.
1: We are good to go. Uh looking forward to this and uh yeah, finally got everything settled.
2: <laughs> so how is life in Baltimore right now?
1: Beautiful. Blue skies. I think it's supposed to get up in mid seventies, so uh um a good day, good day. Uh my kids are anxious, so uh <laughs> it's just me and them today. So uh if you if you hear long pauses, that's me going down and trying to straighten them out. <laughs>
2: all righty noted Uh, we got a lot of cool stuff coming up too and we've talked about this in depth on some of the other episodes particularly the update episode we just did with a bunch of different bands but we're going to be launching a new musical osmosis website we're going to be working on our music documentary i'm coming out to maryland for about three weeks this summer so we could talk about wilmers park and the southern maryland music scene
1: that's it man i am really looking forward to that and uh yeah it should be good it's gonna be good
2: which is crazy to me because we've done a lot of interviews but when we did that show on Wilmer's Park which was just basically us and some of our musician friends chatting like yeah. that thing had like yeah. 10,000 downloads and went viral just people kind of like reminiscing and we got a whole bunch of comments i didn't realize what a staple Wilmer's Park was until all the outpouring after that episode
1: well, it's funny um, because you know how you invite friends to uh, to the Facebook page or other mean or, or or our other social media feeds, and the first thing that people tend to listen to is the Wilmer's Park. I don't know how many people, especially our friends from Southern Maryland, um, I don't know how many of them are like, "Yeah, I just finished listening to the Wilmer's Park thing. Now I'm starting to listen to all the other ones." So it it's just. It's just that that place brings back so many memories for so many uh, different people, because at some time or some point in your life, you either have driven by there, been there for certain, some sort of function, hung out there legally or illegally and um, and, and just had a blast. So it, it's funny how that resonates with a lot of people
2: absolutely man i feel like there's some real gold to be mined there and that's as storytelling because nobody that i know of has ever done any kind of documentary about the place and it truly was historical
1: yes it was yes it was it was i mean you go all the way back to the chitlin circuit all the way to you know the metal scene the death metal scene and then of course you know the stuff that uh you did and i got to be a part of um you know, in the, in the late nineties, early 2000s. So it's, it's, it's a great place, man. It's a great historic place. I mean, if your parents are telling you and talking to you about it and how they, they saw people like James Brown there and Ray Charles there and all these famous people, that was the spot that they had to go to being that they were um, African-American and, you know, and that was part of the Chitlin circuit. You know, the, the history is just nonstop. And the fact that it went from that to a totally different scene you know, 30, 40 years later is just a, a, an incredible thing to think about.
2: Not to mention it's the heart of Go-Go, Chuck Brown, uh, Rare Essence, Junkyard, all those bands.
1: Yeah, Junkyard Band, all those bands played there. Yeah, it, I, uh, I, I'll never forget. We were supposed to uh, see um, Ice Cube there, me and Ben, Ben Story. We were supposed to go and see Ice Cube there and Junkyard Band open, and something happened and the thing had to end, unfortunately. But yeah, even talent like that, that, you know, when um, America's Most Wanted from Ice Cube came out, he, you know, all the way from the West Coast to come, you know, to uh, Wilmer's Park to headline a show. You know, that tells you how um, influential that place is and was. Uh,
2: all righty, Well, let's get to today's stuff. We've got um, Inger Lori from the Nymphs calling in on to our next episode. Also in May, I'll be launching a new podcast with William Sanderson, who plays Evie Farnham in Deadwood. And I've been working with him for the past year running his social media, but his memoirs are actually coming out soon, very soon. I think right around the same time Deadwood comes out, end of May. So I'm going to be helping him out with that release, the book release, and we're going to start a podcast and just kind of talk about the history of William Sanderson. So keep your eyes out for that. It'll be on our tin can
1: page, of course. Oh, definitely. Definitely.
2: All righty. And our producer is back there, right, D? (laughs) This is yet today's today's guest is from another band that I have yet crammed down your throat through every time we get in the car. And yeah. you weren't into punk when I met you, but you sure in the hell are into punk now just by proximity, just by being next to me all the time, playing all Pretty these bands.
3: the closest I got to knowing anything. By like
1: osmosis.
3: Yes. Yes.
1: By, osmosis. by musical <laughs> osmosis.
3: <laughs> the uh the closest I was to punk I think growing up was like The Ramones and I'm assuming they're punk presidents of the United States of America. Um you can yell at me if I'm wrong, it's fine. Um but since then, we actually went on the inaugural weekend for what is now being called Camp or yeah, Camp Anarchy, um which last year of course was Punk and Drublick. And so it was amazing to me because I did not come from that scene. I did not grow up in that scene. And yet we spent three whole days just swimming in it. And I get it. Like I totally, I get the draw. I get the feel. And it's it's an amazing thing.
2: It's, it's a great community, man, yeah. and I'm not going to jump too much down the political rabbit hole, but this was your first experience at a huge punk show, and you just see all this unity and Doran Pennywise, everybody singing Broheem, and and this this energy of brotherhood, and, I, and it was crazy because Trump was giving a speech that same night somewhere yeah. – within an hour it was like i think we were right outside of cincinnati or something and trump was in cincinnati that same weekend and i was like you know it's crazy there are people that wow. would rather be at a trump rally tonight than this And if you look at those two worlds, they're so polar opposite because you look at the crowd at a Trump rally and their faces are all like snarled and they're like, lock her up, an outrage, pitchforks and torches. And then you look at like everybody like holding hands and singing along to Pennywise and it's like, man, who would fucking pick to be over here at this thing? When this beautiful thing's happening over exactly. here. It just doesn't add up to me. In my oh, b- yeah. Little I've still, yeah. still got the tan yeah. lines
3: from that. That was last summer. And I'm telling you, I still have the tan lines from that. because
2: <laughs> You're looking <we> just, good.
3: <laughs> I was like, seriously? I think I'm scarred for life. I've been marked for life by the punk scene. I love it. <laughs> and I'm going to try
2: not to go too idiot fanboy today. So let's get today's guest in here. <laughs> today's guest founded a band whose music is encoded on my DNA. Hardly a party worth. <laughs> Yeah. Day in the kitchen of Ruby Tuesdays, or road trip went by where the angst-driven tones of the, of Screeching Weasel was not a part of the soundtrack. Since his departure from Screeching Weasel in 2001, he has gone on to play with the Mopes, did a touring stint with the Lewingtons, and has founded one of the great underrated rock bands of the early 2000s. Even in blackouts. Writer, musician, actor, and neofuturist calling in all the way from Japan, the well-traveled, well-mannered, well-meaning John Jughead Pearson. John, thanks for calling in so late. Your time.
0: Oh, well, not a problem at all. I did. How did you know I was well-mannered?
2: Oh, I've um, listened to a lot of your YouTube videos. <laughs> You seem like a very respectful type of cat. I feel like if I got into a political debate with you, I don't think we would have much to debate. But as you got into a political debate with somebody, it wouldn't be the usual visceral screaming match. That you're a very respectful person is the vibe. No, that, I get. that
0: is that is true. I do try to. I usually try to understand other people's perspectives and try to maintain my own at the same time. But that's difficult to do sometimes.
2: That's difficult to do all the time, especially in the yes. viper pit known as social media.
0: Yes. yes.
2: <laughs> so, But I won't turn this political because um, it's a music show. And if you get me going down the political rabbit hole, I'll never shut up. Let me start with this before we dive in. I kind of want to let you know how this episode and the listeners know how this episode came to be because I think this is important. Mm. When I put an episode together, I do a lot of research. And I'll go and I'll check out everything they're currently working on. Um, I'll check out any interviews that they've done within the last six months to a year mainly because i want to see what their perspective is today as an artist and also i don't want to repeat the same questions especially when we have actors and stuff on i don't want to just repeat the same questions that they you know they've heard a thousand times it's boring for the audience it's grueling for the guest so i try to avoid that and i try to listen to any kind of interviews i can get my hands on so about a year ago and i'm going somewhere with this About a year ago, (laughs) a musician friend had posted about the new Alice Bag album at that time, Blueprint. And I was like, oh, the bags, I remember them. Let me reach out to Alice. Um, I reached out to Alice. She was gracious enough to do the podcast. And then I was doing my research thing, and I ran across an interview she did on Haley Kane's podcast, Sparkle and Destroy, from Haley and the Crushers. And I had never even heard of them. But I listened to Haley's podcast. I reached out to her. I was like, hey, man, I just wanted to let you mm-hmm. know I really, really dig your podcast and your interview with Alice Bag." She turned me on to her band. I booked her on our show. Then I saw she went on Jughead's Basement, was on your show. And I was mm-hmm. like, holy shit, Jughead, Speech and Weasel. I love those guys. I got to reach out to Jughead. I reached out to you, John, Jughead. Reached Mm -hmm. out to you. You were gracious enough to agree to do the show. I added you on Facebook. And like a day later, you had put up a video by this band, the Peewees. And I was like, wait, the Peewees. There's no way this is the same band. The Peewees. Yeah. Come to find (laughs) out, back in 96, 97, I don't even know how this happened because this was pre-social media. Those kids had reached out to us and said, hey, we're coming out to – we were in a band at the time called Even Steven – And they were like, hey, we're coming out to America. We'd love to do a show out in the D.C. area. Can you set us up a show? And we ended up playing with them and setting a show up at this place called Food for Thought, which was this vegan restaurant right outside. I think it was outside of Adams Morgan in D.C. And I was like, there's no way that could be those same kids or in the same band from 20 some years ago. And it was them. And it just made me realize, like, it just shows kind of the beautiful symmetry that is the punk community. And I have like a half dozen stories at least like that where one thing has led to another. So I want to kind of start off with this. As somebody who has been such a staple, has such a great career in the punk world and has been at it a lot longer than even I have, is this kind of experience you have had, like this um, osmosis or symmetry of reaching out to people and then that leads to something else and that leads to something else? Because I feel like the community is really tight-knit and that, like like I said, I feel like everything kind of leads to the other thing. Is that kind of the experience that you've had? Because that's been my experience since I started doing this.
0: Yeah, I, I've, I actually wrote about that at some, sometime last year because I, I, met, I went to uh, Costa Rica and met uh, a bunch of punks that invited me out to go play in their band, Malas Palabras. And I had no idea who they were or anything, but they said, hey, we'll fly you out here and just play nice. in our band for a week. And I said, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I ate. I ate fruit <laughs> for a week and, uh, visited volcanoes. And, um, but what I'm getting at is that, um, the scene used to be like that when I first started, you know, there wasn't internet yet, but it was a lot of, uh, people that were aggressively good at, uh, pen pals. And, uh, I think that's often forgot that the, the punks back then were very, fairly intellectual and, uh, uh, you know, political and, and, uh, I don't know, advanced in the sort of the techniques of literature and writing. Um, And then I think, you know, punk sort of exploded and then we lost a little bit of that. And now that it's sort of uh, gone back into the underground, I I feel what you're talking about. There's a lot more crossover now where like I'm in Costa Rica and then they're friends with the Mangies in Italy and you know, it all starts crossing over. And then we all end up in Reduno Festival in uh, Bergamo, Italy, uh, which is one of the cool underground festivals right now that just brings people from all over the world. Um, so I, I completely agree with you. and I But I think it has gone through stages. Like when it was huge, there was a little bit less of that for me. But do you
2: feel like now is a net gain as far as there's so much opportunity and such a great platform for independent people, DIY people to put their music out? But there's also such a like glout of just white noise there's so much of it it's just really hard to cut through i mean is that a fair trade off do you think or do you think we've lost something by not pounding the pavement and taking those flyers and stapling them to telephone poles and getting people out on a more personal level
0: i have mixed feelings about it i think one of the, i feel like one of the things that has been lost in this easy access to everything is a little bit of uh, history like people yeah uh, from totally. what i experience don't really follow mm-hmm. like uh family trees of of music as much as they used to which you would think they would more now because it's easier to do but i find people i think are overwhelmed by what's coming out right now so they have lost track of where things are coming from and i often think that makes music a little bit more stale even though it should make it more exciting i think uh, Do you feel like it's more
2: transactional now where before it was like a lot more personal connection
0: well, I also think you just start repeating yourself more if you don't know the past. So I just don't feel like there's as much uh, uniqueness in in music as much uh, from what I experience of it, or it has moved out of the punk scene into other scenes that I'm not familiar with. You know, it's
2: awesome. Huh, Odell? You remember the days of going out there and just really handing flyers out, like in D.C. outside of Smash? Hey, come check out our show! And there's a to me, there's a little bit of magic and nostalgia when I think about those days.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I know, um, you know, just from personal experience, like you were saying, Nick, um, there is definitely something, I remember the days of going to a show, um, you know, or going to shows that you you were planning on going and then leaving a little bit early so you could get out in the front of the club. So you could pass the flyers out for your shows (laughs) or pass out your samplers or pass out, um, samplers from other uh, artists. And I used to do that as well, um, that were playing in the area or coming around, but, uh, uh, In regards, John, I know uh, you were talking about how you met certain bands through and the next thing you know, you're playing over there. Do you think the fact that you could go on YouTube and put in Screeching Weasel or you can go into Google Play or whatever platform you use and you could put in that and then all of a sudden, you know, a lot of times bands that are familiar to your sound or similar to your sound come up. um, Do you think that has a positive on what you guys have done and did? or or even now when you're when you're still playing or do you think it's sort of like you were talking about a little ho-hum and you're like okay well that band sounds a lot or has that actually brought you to um other bands that you may not have heard of
0: um i i feel like i don't know i've i've i, I hear bands still to this day that sound almost too much like how weasel sounded or how much how they think it sounded like the queers and you know bands that Mm -mm. sound like the queers who sound like the beach boys who sound like whatever so i it's hard for me to get through that until i actually meet them or see them live and actually get sort of the personality so i come to music a little bit more in the punk scene through meeting people it tends to mean more to me i think on my average day i don't listen to as much uh punk just by finding it on the internet
2: wow well you know you mentioned screech and weasel and i didn't spend a yeah. whole lot of time on um the screech and weasel pass but there was a couple points i wanted to hit and full disclosure i was a huge screech and weasel fan back in the 90s to this day four or five screech and weasel albums are still in regular rotation in my mp3 <laughs> player and i remember buying teen punks and heat and hearing you guys broke up And that was kind of, you fell off my radar after that. I didn't know Screech and Weasel had gotten back together, that you had left the band. And now, when I was doing the research and I found all this out, I and maybe this is just because of my frame of reference, how I grew up listening to the band, I went and listened to the later Screech and Weasel albums that don't include you on them. And I was like, this doesn't feel like Screech and Weasel to me. In my mind, it'll always run from like that first album in 86, 87... Up until 2001, Teen Punks and Heat era, do you kind of feel like that's the true screeching weasel? And do you think a lot of the fans you run across today kind of
0: feel that way? Um, It's interesting because uh, I often get the question, which you haven't asked. Maybe Now I'll answer it so you don't have to ask it. Is (laughs) Is <laughs> some people say uh, the band to me was more like a, a child than just being a band member. So people often wonder uh, why I still think about it now to this day. Like it's like you don't stop thinking about your child. So it's I, I can't listen like I can't listen to uh, Screeching Weasel after me, and I've never listened to the Riverdales because of the same reason. But I do feel like Screeching Weasel is my still my baby, and I, I'm happy that. Ben is keeping it alive, even though our relationship is, you know, decayed. So I I can't really comment on the new music because I haven't really heard any of it. Um, But it did stop being a band, I don't know, really early, I think, maybe after uh, Anthem. It stopped feeling like a band, band, you know, and then slowly over the years, it became more and more. By emo, it was full out, just Ben Project. He, he stopped touring and to me that was a big part of it because a lot of my engagement in the band was being a performer. Being in charge of the, you know, I was pre- pretty much the band manager for touring and and uh, the money guy. So I, 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 my job sort of, uh, sort of dissipating around that time.
2: Odell did you kind of think of Screech and Weasel oh, as the same way because I mean I I like those other albums after um you know say after the mid-90s I mean I like Bark Like a Like a Dog and Teen Punks and Heat I like all those albums do you kind of think of it the same way that Screech and Weasel yeah. ended in that Teen Punk and Heat era
1: for me it sort of did I think the first three bands that I really listened to was Operation Ivy um You Guys and the Descendants and those were like three of the staples for me and those and 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 I can honestly say this and I'm not saying it as a fanboy or whatever but you guys got me through a lot of stuff so it was one of those things where I could as I was growing I think my uh the style of it changed somewhat and I just realized when the band was shifting that I was like well these guys were the heart and soul of what it was and it's not there anymore so i don't know if it was just something so sort of like you said uh john it's sort of like you know it's sort of like your child moving on you're like well i'm sort of you know I, i'm proud of you but um you know but i'm i'm still over here doing other things and finding other things out as well so um but yeah that's how I, that, that was my take on it
0: yeah i wanted to clarify that i actually i still think the records later records are are good I just didn't feel like they were mm-hmm. a band any a band anymore. It was more like he should have just gone on and done a solo project more by that point. Gotcha. Um, but I but I actually do really like Teen Punks and Heat. I think it's a great record, uh, major label yeah. debut. I think is one of my favorite of all time. Uh, that EP.
2: It's so weird though because you really don't unless it's somebody you know unless it's like the '80s and Circus Magazine like behind what's going on with Dawkin or whatever. You don't know, the, you didn't know the backstories back then because there was no internet. And I mean, I've read your blogs that you've written since the internet has kind of grown into what it is. But prior to that, nobody would have known in the 90s that you were feeling like less and less connected as a band to Screech and Weasel. So yeah. it's interesting to go yeah. back now and hear that story.
0: I, you know, I, even at the point, you know, I don't, it's, it's taken years of, looking over all of this because you know it's my life it's made me who i am so i in the moment i might not have realized as much because we had gone through so many members all the time even the core band that people think are like the band you know panic vapid me and ben were only a Mm -hmm. few years compared to how long the band was i was in the band actually i was until 2006 but we weren't actually putting out any music we were just you know still doing all the business but that's i left in 2006.
2: Oh, gotcha. Let me ask you this then, too. And this is really odd to me because I had either read or heard an interview where you were saying, I think it was an interview you did with Haley on Jughead's Basement, and you were talking about how Screech and Weasel usually didn't play for more than a couple hundred people. And my take on Screech and Weasel from those days is you were right at the that higher echelon like the highest level, the highest tier you can be on for an underground punk band that hadn't gone mainstream like Green Day, I always considered you guys right along with No Effects and Pennywise and Bad Religion. But then going back and looking at the history, I find it fascinating that you weren't up there on that level as far as playing in front of those crowds. I kind of always had the feeling that you, I mean, you were just, when people say, well, who are some punk bands you listen to? Someone outside the scene. Screech and Weasel was always in that list. I never thought yep. of you guys as not being on the same tier as all of the guys at the top of that underground scene.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's a lot of it has to do too with that we stopped touring, so we didn't really have that uh, mechanism for increasing an audience. But also, at, uh, from the very beginning, me and Ben said that we never wanted to open up for bands anymore. That we always wanted to headline. Or, you know, one of the top two bands. So we never really played with other bigger bands. So we never had that building of an audience through that either. So it took us many more years, what, seven or eight years before we even had like 100 to 200 people at a show.
2: And I read that, too. And that floored me that you guys weren't usually wanting to open up for other bands that you wanted to headline. What was the thinking behind that? Because that does seem like it cut your legs out from under you a bit.
0: Well, it started from um, you know, we used to go to shows at the Metro and a lot of, you know, a lot of shows, and those opening bands, people didn't even show up or they didn't even pay attention. So we're like, I'd rather just play to a, you know, a room of three people that are actually there to see us than. That's than, smart. Uh, yeah, it, it's smart, but it's also a very difficult <laughs> <laughs> a path to take. But I mean, I respect
2: the fact that that's the path you laid down. You said, look, this is my line. This is where I want to be, my boundary, for my creative boundary. And you guys stuck to it because a lot of people would have been like, well, this isn't working. We just want to, like what they say in the industry, move units. We want to get as many people in as possible or play on these big shows over here. And I think it takes a lot of integrity to turn down that commercial temptation and just say, fuck it. We're going to do it our way, man, no matter how it pans out. I respect that.
0: Yeah, it was. There was a lot of difficult rules that we had. That a lot, many of them, I agreed with. Ben had a lot of uh, guidelines, but we we couldn't go on after ten. There usually couldn't be more than three bands. We avoided twenty-one and over shows. So, right from the beginning, like when we were Uh-oh. nobodies. Awesome. We were nobodies and we're making these, you know, demands. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> from the Ben
2: side of it, and we don't have to get too controversial, but I'm just curious. From the Ben side of it, was it more ego-driven or was this some kind of logistical madman strategy, super genius strategy of how we you were going to get Screech and Weasel to where you wanted to go to the fastest?
0: Well, I— you know, I don't know what was really in our minds. I, it, you know, Ben would come up with these ideas, and I think our relationship was built on that. I almost always agreed with him and sort of supported those choices. Uh, so it wasn't mm. as much ego-driven then. I think it was just we didn't really have a end goal to be like any big band. We just wanted to keep doing what we were doing, and I mean, I really mean that when I say that we didn't really. Conceive of us being some big or influential band. Yeah, so were
1: you we just no, wanted. sorry.
0: To, go ahead, Odell. We just wanted to travel around, you know, and you know, there I had never been out. I had never been out of Illinois until we started the band. So it was more of a wow. vehicle to get all around the world. But with I us, know, um, all, went, go ahead.
1: Oh no, no, I was just going to say it's it's funny that you're, uh, you know, we're talking about the rules that you established. It um, uh, it wasn't long ago. I know. I believe this year is like the 30th anniversary of Boogada, Boogada, Boogada. If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I want to say it came out around this time. And yeah, um, that's true. Just, just, the, just the fact that I was reading the story about the fact that how, you know, that album, you know, it was, you know, being presented in front of a label and they wanted you to like to change the, the cover of the album to that point. And you guys are like, no, we're not going to do that. This label is ridiculous and we're not going to do that. And it's funny that I sit back like 30 years ago and I had that, you know, sticker on the back of my car. I had, (laughs) I drew that on one of my jackets. I had the pins. And, 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 to be honest in the punk world, that's like, if there was a uniform, if you could make a uniform, there would be certain patches and things on a punk rock uniform that album cover would be one of those on, on, on that. So how does, how does that feel when you look back at that and you know, like, kids have gotten tattoos or you play a show somewhere even now and um I, I you know being on your facebook page and people posting their tattoos of of that album cover how, how does that make you feel
0: um let me uh let me correct something first and then we'll, i'll answer that question actually the i think the record you're talking about was our uh, self-titled cool. which was uh refused by walk through fire records at the time they wanted to change the cover and we wouldn't um the book at the cover was actually supposed to be a, a yeah yes
1: yes my bad yeah
0: I have an artist friend that drew a – that that had the sculpture of a pink skull that he gave me, and that's how the sort of the pink idea started. And we couldn't figure out at the time how to make a picture, (laughs) an actual photograph, onto a cover of a record. So me and Ben at the last minute got my friend Paul to draw some weasels, and we just threw that on the cover. And so that was actually fairly accidental, like the night before we had to get it to the pressing plant. um, we, We threw that on the cover. Oh,
1: wow. Okay, okay. Yeah.
0: So, but but I am, I mean, I'm, I'm used to it by now, but I think because it happens slowly, you know, like I can't even remember the first person to show me a weasel tattoo. So it's like, you know, it built over 30 years, you know, 25 years to the point where I, I'm not really amazed by them. Mm-hmm. But recently I did start posting them on Facebook. And what I'm more impressed with was the way people talk so passionately about it between each other like really respecting the type of tattoo that they're a weasel tattoo what period of the band tattoo you know logo is it um so I'm more fascinated with that than than feeling you know responsible or influential in that way
2: and also when you look at it and i know okay. Everything that went down in Screech and Weasel had to be a bitter pill to swallow. But when you look at your career, your life as a whole, and you look at the theater work you've done, and you look at the books you've written, and you look at all everything you've contributed to the punk scene and to the music scene, when you look at that, it's like like what more? How much more could a man want? Like how much more of a <laughs> legacy could you want? Like your legacy to me, from the outside <laughs> perspective, is amazing to me. It's a great legacy to have.
0: Well, thank you. Actually, it's funny you mentioned something there. I, I've been talking to Larry Livermore again from, uh, you know, started Lookout Records. And he had sent me a message on my birthday that said yeah. he was pretty proud of me for, like, making it past the band and still creating and doing doing it my own way. And, I, I mean, I took the compliment, but I also wrote back to him and said, well, you got to remember, I was always doing all that stuff. I always had a split career between theater and uh, music. So it wasn't. It's just that the punk people were never aware of it until the like the neo futurist. Until I joined that group,
2: right? And I mean, and I think that's what true artists do is they always have wear a lot of different hats, have a lot of different balls in the air. And even mm. if you're only known for one thing, there's always something. Especially nowadays when we have the younger bands on. Anybody under 30, they are not just in a band. I have yet to run across anybody we've had on this (laughs) show. They always have some kind of crazy side project. Yeah, that is true. That is very true. They're a filmmaker. They have their own clothing line, like with the kids from Egg Drop Soup. It's just that Mm -hmm. the, the creative output now from young people is staggering to me. And I think it's become the norm where back in our day, John, it was more like you're crazy if you're doing 20 things at once but i was kind of the same way too i always had 20 things at once going on i just one thing was never enough for me
0: yeah that was always just my way i mean I, for a while there I, I i actually mentioned this a lot usually interviews because i think it's fascinating i was one play for one record and it made sense because we would put out a record do a tour and on tour i would write a play and then i'd come home and i'd i'd put up the play so i think it was like up to 15 records and 15 plays were holy even, cow. and then then they started, you know, changing in different directions. And so now, I don't know, I'm on like 32 records now. And I've done about, I don't know how many plays. Oh, my
2: God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Let me ask you this gracious. last thing. No, I,
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to say one more thing before I forget, too. That what's I think is interesting is if if I'm in Chicago, I'm actually more recognized for being uh, the, a neo-futurist. Really? A uh, player? Oh, yeah. right. oh by...
1: Oh yeah, Knife.
0: but specifically that company that I'm a part of in Chicago. They've been around for uh, almost thirty years too. Um, but I'm, you know, yeah, and it sells yep. out every every weekend. It, it there's like a eight hundred to nine hundred people come see this show. So everywhere in Chicago, I'd be recognized for that more than the band.
2: You know, you kind of got me sidetracked here. I've got to ask you this wow. now that you mention that um do you feel like with what you just said do you feel like screeching weasel is like totally in a rearview mirror and you're no longer hey it's the screeching weasel guy or did you ever feel like you were just defined by screeching weasel throughout your career
0: i never felt completely defined by screeching weasel but once again i think that has to do with my relationship to it like i it was family so it, you know okay. you have your dysfunctional families but they're always yours and I, I i just never really saw it as it just defining me completely it was just uh it was just another brother or sister to me or or child interesting <laughs> and i had many children um obviously but you know, yeah but I, I still it does bother me sometimes that i i still let it nag at me like some of the bad blood between me and ben still I mean it's like a divorce you know I mean you know you carry that stuff with you
2: I know that you had said in interviews you don't see a path forward would you would ever play music with Ben again but through the annals of like rock history there's been tons of bands who had nasty breakups and ended up playing again do you ever see a path where you and Ben play music again? I mean, could that ever be possible? Do you think, or is there just too much water under that bridge?
0: I, you know, I never say no to anything because I, you know, I I've learned enough in my life that you know we change and we make different decisions, m- different than we would have done when we were younger. Or just you know, yesterday. Um. So I would never say that. It would take. Uh. It mm-hmm. would take quite a bit. But because uh, near the end there. Things were starting to be divided up unfairly based on his sort of thoughts on percentages, and I wouldn't deal with any of that shit right now these days. Uh, I, I would, I would gotcha. want everyone, I would want everyone treated equally, and I don't know if that would be even possible.
2: That makes I, total I, I, sense.
0: But I would consider it. I mean, if he approached me, I would say, "Yeah, cool. Let's make sure everyone gets an even cut of everything," you know.
2: Wow, man, so much history. You know, one more point I do want to make on this, and I told you this in a message on Facebook. When people would ask me about certain bands, and I've always said this, I said, the bands from Chicago, especially I think Chicago personifies this almost more than any other city except for maybe D.C., but you guys especially. Screech and Weasel sounds like Chicago. Avail sounds like Richmond. Fugazi sounds like DC. Like it, I just can't imagine pre-internet a band like Screeching Weasel coming out of like Tulsa, Oklahoma. I kind of feel like it has to come out of Chicago, right?
0: Yeah, you know, you said that. I, I just don't. I, I immediately we felt like we had to get out of Chicago because we just didn't fit in. Really. I mean, yeah, at the time it was <laughs> At the time it was, you know, Naked Reagan was the big gods of, of of punk music then and we loved them, but we were nothing like them. Yeah. We were like, you know, we were like the yep. kids at the, you know, at Thanksgiving. We were at the kids' table and they were, you know, smoking it up and playing poker with the turkey on the main, you know, the adult table. Um so at I never really f- felt like we were a Chicago band um but i can't it's hard to uh, you know separate myself from the band and look at it as a sound
2: see that's amazing to me because when i think chicago music i think of fast driving music like the pulse of the city i think of upbeat Not like really bogged down with heavy lyrics, not saying that a lot of your songs didn't say something, but it's not this bogged down with that. Like a lot of bands that are known for just politics. And it was just a fun, upbeat band. And that's kind of how I think of the city of Chicago, because me and Odell both love Chicago. And I always felt like that sound defined that city to me as a fan.
0: I have to clarify a little bit, because I think some of the mistake is to think that we were just this fun Band and where I think the important stuff in the band is the darker stuff or the, you know, the self-analysis yeah.
1: that
0: comes out, uh, I, but that might be pretty Chicago too because you know you, you're hit with some of the worst weather in the country and then you know, so you're sort of uh, you're very contemplative, <laughs> contemplative.
2: <laughs> right, right. And I didn't mean uh, to um, so make I it sound g- frivolous <laughs> or like you guys no, were no, surface I, because you definitely had lyrics that I connected to. I just meant I wouldn't put you in that dark place like mm-hmm. where Black Flag was or something oh, like no, that, no, no, or against goodness. all authority, or Propaganda. Not and I love those bands. I you mm-hmm. know, I'm a political animal by nature, so I love those bands. The pissed is probably my favorite band of all time, lyricists of all time, as far as that punk world goes. But the way that you presented the music, I felt like was accessible to everybody, even if you weren't a political animal.
1: Yeah. And,
2: that, and that to me seemed very Chicago, where D.C. was kind of like, hey, this is a politically charged town, brother. And you better know like, who every city councilman is and what every prop is that's going on in this town if you want to be part of this scene, where Chicago was more like, all-inviting to me. And yeah. that's how the music sounded, and that's why Screech and Weasel kind of defined that city for me.
0: Well, I, I mean, going back to the day, I think that has more to do with us being like suburban boys more than being, uh, about Chicago, the city. Yeah,
1: That's what I was going to ask you, John, about what uh, I was going to ask you about the suburbs. Cause I know a lot of the bands that we have on, they're from the Chicago suburbs and, and, um, and they talk about, uh, you know, their family upbringing and how that impacted how they grew up. And I know, I know you had a lot of siblings. So how did, how did that affect you, uh, growing up?
0: Um, I don't, I don't know how my family directly uh, affected it. I mean, our, I'm pretty. I love my family, but we were kind of fucked up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't have the rebellion that like uh, that Ben had or or or, or Vapid had because I actually got really along with my mother, mother very well, and uh, I think Ben was sort of rebelling more than I. So I I don't know. I, I the suburban thing is more about being inundated with tv shows you know and like the brady bunch and and mm. i don't know and you know second city coming to the you know schomburg oh, and, you know, and the comedy and uh yeah you know, and yeah. we were it's just it had a little bit more of a lighthearted feel but like i said it had a, a darker side beside it also um i always say we were more influenced like directly from adrenaline od and circle jerks we came from that uh that school of yeah being a little ironic and a little uh letting the humor sort of uh take control sometimes
2: right right and that's kind of again what i would mm-hmm. say with screech and weasel being not as self-imposing serious as some of the dc bands that i also like and i think it just made it really accessible let's move on to even and blackouts because i want to touch on a couple different things Mm-hmm. This is a band you started right, with Liz Eldridge, and this was shortly after the Screech and Weasel years. But the sound to me is more eclectic and definitely more technical than Screech and Weasel. When you're putting this together, were you purposely trying to move in a totally opposite direction? Was it just organic? And how natural was that shift for you, going from a band like Screech and Weasel to a band like Even in Blackouts?
0: Well, I, I never really... i. I, you know I I helped bring the melodic solo if you will to uh, to pop punk but I never really considered myself a pop punk songwriter. So when uh, I decided when mm-hmm. Weasel we stopped touring as a band that's when I decided I had to get another band going. So the idea was that we would be uh, a band that would only tour and not put out records so but that kind of quickly went away as soon as I realized I could write songs. Like <laughs> like like screeching weasel we weren't really following any pattern of a direct band that we were trying to emulate exactly uh, what which is how why i started even the Evening blackouts then i didn't want to do what we did with weasel so i purposely got a uh, choir i looked for a choir trained vocalist because i thought oh that'd be, that'd be kind of cool i was with ben weasel who's a nasally non-singer singer like bob dylan or someone like that you know and then i was like oh let's get let's go the opposite direction and have like a choir train singer a female so that and then i wanted an acoustic because i wanted to see if i could actually pound uh the punk energy out of an acoustic guitar so that's still one of my goals and i'm pretty proud of that
2: but coming off of so many years with screech and weasel it sounds like you like had a little bit of self-doubt if you were actually like had the musical chops to move into a you know more complex or more diverse music i mean am i framing that correctly were you a little bit insecure about your musical prowess going into that band
0: oh i don't i wouldn't say i was insecure but i did actually specifically start that band so that i could learn more i think I sort of settled uh, where I was with Weasel because I could do almost everything I was doing with a two-finger bar chord, you know. And uh, it was mostly about downstroking, which I think is a technique and not shouldn't be, a, you know, something you live by. Um, and that band became more and more about that. So I don't think I was insecure about it. I just, I just wanted to do something very different. And when it when it didn't appeal to the punks, then I got a little insecure. But that often feeds me. That's where my rebellion comes in that actually fed me to be more bizarre.
2: Okay. <laughs> wow. All right, well let's talk about the new album that's coming out May 3rd, Romantico. Um I know I had read on a flyer that you guys had put up that it's been 10 years since the last album. Is that time gap because like you said you wanted to focus more on touring? Was it because you guys all have so much going on? It was just a scheduling issue? Why such a large time gap between albums?
0: Um I I, I stupidly, and still I don't really regret, because I try not to regret anything, but I did make a mistake in sort of putting an end to the band in 2009, because I, I basically went broke, because uh, uh, the band wasn't sort of making any money back, and you know, that's not why we do it, but ultimately I was broke.
2: Right, you had to sustain right. yourself. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, out you got to survive, so yeah.
0: I tried to get the band to try to start taking more responsibility on, but it's and it's hard, and I don't really have any Qualms with anybody about it. I just learned, uh, I actually learned that not everyone can be like the front man of a band or the business person in a band. I think me and Ben were lucky that we were both business minded like that. So I kind of got disillusioned and just uh, called it quits. But we all continued working for like the last 10 years. Like I would have them over to my house. We'd play some acoustic shows. You know, the th- uh, bice, the drummer, and uh, Gub, the guitarist, and Liz would go on like family vacations together. So we never stopped being together until my. Uh, then I okay. had my I had my fiftieth birthday, where uh, the Mangies, right, and, uh, and the Mopes and yeah. uh, Lillingtons and uh, us. We played, and that sort of brought us back together. And then we were like, "This is stupid. We need to be doing stuff."
2: But It always pulls you back in right? because you have a very accomplished writing and theater career. So is it a is it a situation where it's like I feel like music is my roots? Like I said in the beginning of the show, it's like it's encoded on your DNA and you something always pulls you back because it feels like you could very well just leave the music world and sustain yourself off writing and theater because you're successful in those arenas as well.
0: That is true. But I mean, to me, they, they, they have to exist together. They always have had to, I don't feel, uh, mm. I don't know. I feel I I gain my creativity through the other things that I'm doing. So, you know, I, if, if I start just doing the one thing, you know, I'm it, I'll just get stuck in a mirror, like looking at yourself, creating yourself, creating, you know, becomes too meta where if I allow myself uh, to do these uh. other genres, it, it feeds it more. I, to me, it makes it more unique to feed it with other genres Man, that is amazing, Timmy. So what
2: you're saying is your theater world, your writing world and your music world all have kind of a symbiotic creative relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Yes.
1: Going back to what Nick was saying earlier, how we've had a lot of guests on that um, have multiple careers. And I would say a good 65 to 70 percent of them uh, would say opposite. They would be like, well, I do this on this aspect and it doesn't really affect how I am musically or it doesn't affect my creativity but you're coming at it as no this feeds into this and this feeds into that and that's what makes me and I and um I I think that's really cool how you can take those aspects and use them all to and you've been using them all ever since you know pretty much since day 1 to to create the person that you are.
0: Yeah, I I was- uh, my mind just went in like seven different directions at once. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> but I feel, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like those people are kind of lying themselves, lying to themselves. I don't think you could, I don't think one brain could be, or even groups of brains, can be doing different projects or different things without them affecting each other. I just think that's, I don't know, living in some kind of fantasy world.
2: Huh. Well, let me do this then. I want to play a new song from the upcoming album, Intergalactic Space Travel. Um, set this up for us. And kind of set up the tone of the album as well. What do you want people to know about the album and why we're talking about it? I know we can pre-order it. How can you get the album?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Stardom is, I would say, Stardom is my, my route uh, for how to get it. You can go to their website and it'll direct you to like uh, someone selling it in the States. Or, or in Europe, you know, stardom will take care of it. Um, setting up the record, it's uh, called Romantico. So you actually have to do the exclamation point thing at the end of it. when A you say bad it. host.
2: I'm <laughs> slapping my hand right now. I really dropped a ball on that one, John. Sorry.
3: <laughs> um,
0: to me, uh, Romantico is kind of like my uh, emo record from Screeching Weasel, where me and Gubb, the other uh, writer of the record... Um, just decided we were just going to let out the emotions that we had of being separate for so many years and very disappointed that we lost all that time together. So the record is sort of, is mostly about that sort of relationship of uh, how it's strange that, you know, a lot of bands do well because people like conflict and our band is one of the least con- conflicted bands. So one of my things was, well, maybe I can change the fabric of, of music and, and show that you can actually be well-adjusted uh, people in a band, and put out good music. <laughs> so and to me, you that's think what the you,
2: record, uh, it's mission accomplished. You think you've pulled that off?
0: I I never know. You know, I don't. I, you know, uh, uh, even in blackouts, the sad part is over the years, it's been less and less. Uh, audience i mean there's you know i started out with a little bit of the weasel audience and then a lot of them quickly realized it wasn't screeching weasel and i wasn't going to do that uh to now it's it's you know it's a handful of people like we sell like 100 records um so i i think we did it and from the inside i i i definitely think it's one of the best things we've done and some of our friends have said that too but uh i can't say anything about how it's going to be responded to responded yeah well, you it's know, 100%. and I don't
2: necessarily right. co- consider even in blackouts a punk band. And I think maybe that's hobbling you a little bit and And maybe, like you said, people came out and was expecting screech and weasel too. And when it wasn't, they kind of bailed. I mean, it might do well just to go out there as a totally separate entity without. I mean, I don't know I don't know if the screech and weasel thing and the and coming from the punk world is handicapping you or not. I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: I, I agree. I think it has, but I didn't, it's the world I know and it's the world I love and it's the people I love. Um, so I, I don't know any other way to do it.
2: Well, I really hope the second album is a lot more successful because it kind of blew my doors off when I listened to it and I tried to listen to it, not looking through the lens yeah. of punk music. Because once again, when I went back and listened to the first album, I didn't think punk rock. So I just kind of opened myself up and let it be what it was. And I really hope that that's what a lot of people do with it.
0: I hope so, too. Oh, yeah, well, you, you asked me to talk about the song, so should I do that now before we go yeah. into it?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then uh, we'll play the song, and I, got, <laughs> I want to touch on your podcast, and we'll get you out of here, because I know it's getting laid out there in oh, Japan. Yeah. You've got I a lot of also, wizarding to do.
0: Yeah, I do. But I could also talk all night, too. I'm the same. I'm like you. Um, but I'll say Intergalactic uh, is actually <laughs> one of my uh, favorite songs that Gubb wrote and it actually when we me and gub introduced uh the band to uh, the songs to all the band we sort of sat in my living room playing them acoustic um we had sent them demos of all the songs and then we skipped that one cuz me and gub had decided we weren't going to do it what well, that one and uh, my pissing poison song and then liz was like no we're doing that song and she never speaks up like that she's you know, her it's hard to get opinions out of her and she demanded that we would Wow uh, we would do that song, and and once once we played it with her singing, is like, oh my god, yeah, of course we should do this song. It has this great melody, um, and it's sort of based on a, a husker do sort of feel song that uh, me and Gub share a big passion for, old husker du.
1: Yeah.
2: Nice. All right. Well, let's play some intergalactic space travel from Romantico. Thank you. Did I nail it, John. You did. Yeah. I'm not All right, that was intergalactic space travel from the new Even in Blackouts album. Wait for it, Romantico. John, um, let me go ahead. I know we got to get you out of here. I want to talk about Jughead's Basement because that's where I had seen you had Haley on, and that kind of opened the door, like I said earlier in the episode, to everything that's happening now. I was amazed when I went on the website, I started scrolling through the episodes and I listened to the one with angry Simone's part of that one. I listened to the whole one with Haley and the whole one with Larry from um, Peg boy and by Paul's um, stiffs and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I was amazed that you started that podcast in 2012. I started podcasting in 2013 and I felt like I was living in a digital log cabin on the frontier. (laughs) I didn't think people were doing, especially people in the punk scene We're doing podcasts back in 2012. That's amazing to me.
0: Oh wow, yeah, they were they were around before that, but I I was pretty amazed too. Uh, My my friend uh, actually, um, I did this Facebook Live thing. I don't, I remember, I can't remember who had me do it. Some zine, online zine, where they hosted like someone live on Facebook and people could talk to them, and it went really well. So my friend. from indiana uh just called me up and said hey we want to support you doing a podcast you can make it whatever you want it to be um so i decided i wanted to i had just had a flood and i lost a bunch of my favorite records so i was like i want to do i want to i want to do a podcast on those records and see if i can get i had my rule was i had to get three-fourths of a band uh to do separate interviews in order to for it to go on the podcast um so that's how it started
2: you know, it's interesting you say that, too, because that's one of the things I was thinking as I was scrolling through was, are these John's favorite albums? Or are these just the favorite albums of the people he could get to come on the show? Were there people that you couldn't get to come on the show so you couldn't do some of the albums you wanted?
0: Yeah, and also, you know, if members have passed away or, or if they refuse to do it, I've had to not do them. Like Teen Idols I wanted to do, but I, I couldn't get everybody to do it. So, uh, And Circle Jerks was the same thing. I got two, but I, I'll only do it if I get right. three out of the four or four out of the five, you know. So I've had to drop a lot of them that I wanted to do. But uh, most of them are the records that I were in my collection. Uh, Promise Ring was a band that I ended up surprised myself, and I I didn't ah. wasn't, I wasn't a fan of them before, but then I went back and listened to their records, and I loved it. So I called them up, and they all agreed to do it. But that's that's one of the few that I wasn't. That's awesome. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of it first.
2: It's always great when that happens too, when you revisit an old band or even an old TV show and you're like, wow, man, this is actually a lot better than I remember. And then there's the opposite. I remember one time they were doing like a Fraggle Rock marathon <laughs> on HBO or something. And I like set my timer, and this is like before video on demand and all that. And I was like, oh my God, Fraggle Rock, I remember that. I got to check this out. And I was watching, and I was like, oh, this is horrible. I went out and bought Modern Problems with um, Chevy Chase too, and I had the same
0: experience. I was like, this movie
2: sucks. Why did I love this movie as a kid? It's terrible. (laughs) My
0: thing is uh, is heavy metal bands, and you know, I came out of the heavy metal scene, but I didn't really, I didn't really listen to lyrics then. I just loved the Mm -hmm. energy of it. And then, like, I don't know, ten years ago, I started listening to the lyrics of like Aerosmith or UFO or some of my favorite bands, and I'm like, oh, I can't do this. These lyrics are horrible. I have to go back to not listening to what they're saying. They're horrible, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> and I, easy. Too. It actually built my confidence as a writer, too. I was like, oh, my God, I actually know what I'm doing as a writer, a songwriter. I did. I did, didn't realize most of these people were writing shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: there's some, definitely some shining gems in the metal world. I mean, Alice Cooper is probably oh, of yeah, my yeah. all-time favorite band uh, out of any genre. But I will say I was in a record store maybe 10 years ago. You know, I was firmly, I was into metal until about my late teens, early 20s. And then somebody, actually, it was Larry's band. Someone turned me on, Pat Sheehan turned me on to Peg Boy. And I've told this story before. I went home, and I immediately like threw away almost all my metal tapes. <laughs> I was like, this is fucking garbage. <laughs> And I went out and started buying, like, obsessively buying punk music. <laughs> I just felt connected for the first time. I think I kept, like, my Iron Maiden and Dio and, like, stuff like that. But, like, all the Warrant or Glam Metal stuff, just I just threw it in a box and, like, threw it either in the trash or a closet or something, never to hear from it again. And I, it's just I was in a record store maybe 10 years ago, and I picked up a Poison album, and there was a song on there called I Hate Every Bone in Your Body But Mine. And I was like, "Oh, I used to listen to this shit. <laughs> My God! How yeah. did they, and it was you know it was yeah, an old yeah. album." And I Been was like,
1: there, done that, man.
2: How did they get away with this stuff? in like in the eighties, <laughs> me too would shred these motherfuckers today. Like, it's just crazy to me how much things evolve and how much
1: things that's change. Like, that's like horror films. <laughs> <laughs> so I've many watched, things. I watched some. Yeah, I bought some horror films, man. Where I'm like. Oh, this is coming on like the omen or, or or there's been a couple of them. And I've been like, I'll sit there and I'll try to watch it. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this is horrible. I, wh- what was I thinking? Oh, okay. Let me go on the rest of my day.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was just sounded like bitter old men talking about how our day was better than your day, <laughs> kid, like, the, the culture today. Jughead's Basement, one, where can you find it? And two, where do you go from here? Are you, because the interview you did with Haley was kind of like a dual interview and it wasn't really the same format as some of your other stuff. Are you trying to evolve that format now that you kind of touched on all the records you wanted to touch on? Or do you still have a lot of other records to kind of? To break down and diagnose like this
0: oh i have many 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 records the the problem is that uh it they i get a little obsessive about it and each one takes me like six months to you know put together at the the smallest amount of time um so it's it's a difficult process and uh i just i have a lot of other things going on so it's hard for me to do them like the one i'm doing right now is the smoking popes and each interview is like two to three hours and there's four of them so I, I, you know.
2: Oh my God, we have this, so much is, in common.
0: Yeah, this is for free. So, and I, I'm really obsessive about the editing. It's almost like each one is an art project to me. So, I, I decided to do yeah. these little shorter interviews, yeah. uh, just to fill up, you know, to cause, you know, so I'd have more episodes. But uh, I don't, I don't like that format as much. I love talking to people, but I, I really like these sort of obsessive uh, album uh, reviews that I do.
2: And you just don't do it on the podcast. I mean, you've got where you've broken down every Screech and Weasel album you were involved in, and you just go through song by song with the sides on it. And then you had the same thing with Box of Weasels, which is your book. You know, I wanted to ask you, too, and I know I asked you in a message, but I wanted to say the answer for the show. Um, I know Ben Weasel came out with a book around the same time that was kind of the same thing, like a fictional biop of the band. One, did was that coordinated? that you guys were kind of kind of do it the same way, and two, why didn't you just write a straightforward biography of Screech and Weasel?
0: Um, well, I, it was my label, so uh, uh, the publishing company was mine, so I had put out my plays, and then Ben said, hey, why don't you put out my novel about, you know, I'm writing about uh, punk rock, and uh, I did. I read it, and I didn't like it. Uh, I love Ben's writing, like his essay writing. I also put out a book of uh, Punk is a Four-Letter Word, which is all his essays, and i thought that was his format where the where i thought the novel was thin and and it wasn't about screeching weasel as much as i thought it should be i and so i i wrote weasels in a box as a response to it oh um,
2: i didn't know and that. even
0: in in like hell oh, okay he okay me. yeah in like hell he kills me off so the whole my whole book revolves around <laughs> me dying <laughs> in 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 a box <laughs> i keep on getting hit by a car so it's, it's, it was definitely a response. And I also didn't want to write a, a tour journal. I, 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 you know, I wanted to be a, I still want to be a novelist. So I, I, I wanted to tackle it in a different way.
2: All right, well, let's finish up with the Neo Futurists. Um, just kind of, cause I, I want to make sure I hit all your creative endeavors since you've taken time out to call us today. Tell us, what do you want people to know about the Neo Futurists? I know you're in Japan right now is that affecting how you're going to put out the Even and Blackouts album? Where did you go how long ago did you go in the studio and record it? Cuz I know you left for Japan what like 2 weeks ago?
0: and uh, no, I've been here now since uh well we, you know, Even Blackouts did a week tour in Japan because I was coming here. So, we got here for uh-huh. my birthday in February in the, uh, the second week of February. So, I've been here since then.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
0: Um, and uh I don't know. I came wow. here basically uh, for money. Um, um, I really love Japan, but I I was very sad to have to leave the band. Uh, but I, I needed insurance and I needed uh, money, so we're trying to figure it out now. We're still trying to do stuff uh, while I'm away. Like me and Gub wrote that whole record while I was in Japan the first time. So um, we're trying oh, okay. to do some. Of this, yeah, we're trying to do some of the same ideas again. Um, but I, I really I would love I would rather be playing live music with them than being here. But,
2: and, and how so, is this affecting your theater career? And, and tell us a little bit about the Neo Futurist, too.
0: Yeah, but, you know, I was part of the Neo Futurist, I joined in '96. So, um, and I did that pretty much straight every single weekend for about 10 years. Then I helped start the New York company and the San Francisco company. And now my, I'm sort of an adjunct member of that company now um so it's not as nearly full-time anymore i haven't really done anything in uh, about like two years there um but i but i i still teach there occasionally because i teach theater and uh, i'll probably do something with them again when i get back because we have this series of plays called daredevils where we talk about our lives and how we're all daredevils and it does really well so we'll probably do a, th- a trilogy or a third one of that But uh, currently, I'm uh, currently I'm not doing. uh, You know, I'm acting here in Japan, but I'm acting for a corporation and not for for passion.
2: (laughs) How does that work? Gotcha.
0: How does it work? You audition, and then they send you to another country, and you act.
2: (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know how much you can go into what you're actually doing, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I'm under contract not to talk about what got I you, got do. Gotcha, so. gotcha. But, but I am a wizard. I can say that, that I, I, I act as a wizard.
2: Nice. But, I guess people would have all right. to research it to figure it out. Or go out to Japan <laughs> and stalk you yeah. if they I really never. wanted to. So let yeah, me fa- I, kind of finish up with this, ask you this kind of last thing. When you're away from one of your other creative branches when you're away from theater for X amount of time or you're away from writing X amount of time or even your YouTube videos, which I think you're really proficient with, do mm-hmm. you feel a longing for that? Are you just kind of focused on one thing at a time and everything else is out of your like periphery Or is it always like bugging you in the back of your brain? I got to do some theater soon. I got to get back to Chicago and do this. Or I got to write something soon. Or are you pretty capable of just focusing on one thing and tuning out everything else?
0: I'm very incapable at tuning. I mean, of focusing in on one thing. (laughs) I I never have been able to do that. So, like, while I'm here, I'm still working on my third novel and trying to help promote the band and also acting. And con- con- conceiving some ideas for the neo-futurists. So I, they're always constantly, always competing with each other in a more of a happy way in my head. <laughs>
2: and Play oh, to okay, the Lapoons, your new book. I know you've been working on it a while. Do you have any kind of ETA on that? Or are you just kind of letting it run its course and it'll be out when it's ready to be out?
0: My ETA was, I was my I'm on a year contract. I was going to try to get it done by then. But I'm not sure if that will happen. But it's my third novel and if it's it's stuck in my head for like the last four or five years so that usually means i'm gonna have to do it because i have to get it done
1: Um, gotta get it out
0: (laughs) yeah it's about i I really like the idea it's about a it's about a cartoon family that lives in you know the real world but what i liked about it is normally you see that as a movie or a sitcom and i was like oh i like the idea of describing cartoon characters so that's kind of fun so they get sucked into
2: the real world right
0: yeah, yeah, but you don't really know why they're here. It's it's sort of my, every, all of my books are existential. That's my favorite philosophy. So they're all about what does it mean to be human. So I'm using these characters to sort of talk about what it means to be in a family, you know, to be human, to to not know if there's a god or not. So it's a lot. Wow. It's, it deals with some serious Pretty cool. stuff.
1: That's awesome. So is the yeah, moral yeah. of the
2: story that these animated characters are more human than most humans are?
0: In uh, in some of I'm not really you know I'm more or less having fun with taking bits of my real family and mixing them with how how can you have fun describing cartoon actions in a book like you know stretching necks or or you know people being able to turn their got fingers you, into keys um, but the story itself is pretty uh, yeah they're just normal people except they they believe they might not be able to die. <laughs> Oh model, wow! Can't, but I they mean, can't change. They can't change. They don't yeah, age. Yeah,
1: they can't change.
0: Yeah. One Wear of the, the cool same things clothes. The, yeah. I'm using a lot of. There's this character, Jagged, who is the oldest brother, and he, um, he's kind of embodying my days on the road because he's a, he's in a punk band. But he has a mohawk, but he doesn't want to be a ter- stereotypical punk, so he keeps on shaving it, but it grows right back again. So it's kind it grows of grows right back.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's like awesome. an interview with a That's vampire. Awesome. They the little girl keeps cutting her hair, and it's and yeah. It's like, it
0: is a little bit like that. I mean, I I re- this is probably one of my least original ideas, but I think I can do it in a way that sort of plays with those cliches. Yeah, but so
2: I'm good. Not, unless somebody is like a lot of times I'd, i used to have video games and they would do these indie games instead of pac-man they would have like puck man it'd be the exact same thing and obvious rip off <laughs> to get around any kind of trademarks or whatever but if you're inspired by something or you're writing something in the same vein or genre it, like to me unoriginality or originality doesn't play into it it's just your own personal voice on a subject matter that already exists so i don't really yeah. see it as like being unoriginal
0: yeah, I, I I agree with that. that. That kind of not to bring even blackouts back again, but I will for a second because people were like, I, I got people Chris started criticizing me there the beginning, claiming that I had said that I created acoustic punk, and I was like, I've never said anything like that. What I do is I, I had said that I I had never done it before, so uh, that's always sort of how I look at uh, writing. It's like, oh, I have never done this thing before, so. If I do it truthfully to myself, it'll be individual uh, because it's from an individual. Right. Know, that makes
2: sense. But that's how every form of music, unless you're in a fucking Kiss cover band where you're putting on their makeup and just replaying their songs, no matter what you're doing, it's your own personal – like it's a reflection of your own personal experiences the sum of your life knowledge – to me, that seems yeah. rich. I used to be obsessed when I wrote. I would like look up anywhere I could and make sure there wasn't a song that had the same name. Because I was like, I don't want to be ripping anybody off. I want to make sure like nobody's ever written a song called Office Politics before. <laughs> yeah, And I used to be kind of obsessive about that until I kind of evolved into the idea, hey man, even if another band like 10 years ago wrote a song called Office Politics, this is my version, my look at what Office Politics is. And it, it kind of freed me up to do a lot more where I was pigeonholing myself before.
0: Yeah, there's uh there's this paper that I've been wanting to write with my uh, my uh, a friend of mine who has like a degrees in like 700 different things, but he's a teacher, and a lot of it is about studying the idea of individuality and how it affects creativity. And one of my ideas is that even if you have twins or two people that look exactly the same, if you put them in a room and start asking them questions, you're going to start knowing which one is which. And to me, if you can channel that into what you do creatively, you're instinctively going to be able to create something unique and individual because none of us have the same experiences. It's just hard to channel that. into Everybody
1: paints
2: a sunset differently.
0: Yep, true.
1: Absolutely. One of my favorite albums from you guys was done back in like 93. It was a split. It was a split with Born Against. How did that work? Because I've heard stories. Yeah, we
0: we had started uh, playing shows with Born Against uh, really early on in both of our careers. We used to stay at their house in Jersey, and they would stay with us. Um, And we knew that our bands were so completely different, and even our lifestyles were different. But you know, we we really liked each other a lot. So Ben and uh, uh, McFeeders—that's his name, right? Yeah—came up with the idea of switch writing songs for each other. So it just came out of a friendship, but also realizing that we were uh, in two completely different scenes within the punk scene. All
2: right, John, this has been a true treat. I want to thank you for spending well, almost an hour and a half with us. I guess I fibbed to you when I say I get you out of, <laughs> out of here in under an hour. I didn't realize where the time went. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, <God>. um, <laughs> John. Tell everybody where to find you and once again how to pick up the new Even in Blackouts album that drops May 3rd.
0: Yeah, I, well, I think my site that actually we were talking about, um, um, Haley, she actually helped me design it. Uh, I, I'm actually at... And uh, that's Haley club,
2: from Haley and the Crushers. Haley yes,
0: Haley. A great person. She's amazing.
2: Oh, yeah, um, she's fabulous. I love Haley. Yeah. She's amazing.
0: Um, So we started a yeah. site that has, that has taken all the things I do and put them in one place. So that's uh, Jughead's Basement Official. Is that what it is? Yeah, Jughead's Basement. Let me look at...
2: Yeah, it's jugheadsbasementofficial.com. Yeah, yep, I got pull yep up right
0: that's now. it. Jugheadsbasementofficial.com, and that you can find anything uh, John-related, Jughead-related, and you can learn uh, even uh, about even in blackouts has their own sort of uh, link right there too. So anything about the band you can discover there too.
2: Are you ever floored by everything you've done? When I click through here and it's like, read his articles, check out his blog, look at it like (laughs) this project. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this guy is a content generating machine. (laughs) Like if we ever had an apocalypse and generations, a hundred years from now, pulled up this archive, it'd be like, was this guy the king of that country? Like, how does anybody (laughs) have this much content? (laughs) You have content. (laughs) it, It is... I'm flabbergasted to where I can't even talk. It's so much. Do you ever look back on it and go, man, I have done so much?
0: I yeah, I, I do. I feel that way. But I think one of the things, the, the downfalls of that is I've done so many different things that it's hard to sell myself as one thing. So I I feel like I fail at my own uh, PR person because I don't know how to describe myself. And I think it hurts. I Seriously, I'm not even joking. I think it hurts my reputation because people don't really, really understand what I am.
2: <laughs> but who knows but. you all inclusive? In <laughs> other words, I feel like the people from your theater world probably don't know a whole lot about your punk roots. And I feel like a lot of the screeching weasel fans like me prior to this interview had no idea. that neo-futurist exist or you had anything to do with theater.
0: That's true. Yeah. I mean, they don't, I mean, the neo-futurist, uh, kind of crossover a bit, that's, uh, because they do have some sort of punk, uh, you know audiences do come there so there's punks in chicago that actually know my company but in general you're right uh and in the neo futures is more the artsy sort of theaters even for chicago so
2: so it's punk uh, adjacent
0: yeah it is punk adjacent yeah but i didn't you know i didn't that's not how i got into it i got into it through uh I was working at second city and doing improvisation and heard about it through that, those channels.
1: Gotcha. I'm starting to oh, talk God. to you
2: again and I could go on another hour. Let me <laughs> let you get out of here. We'll have you back. And I could pick your brain about the other five. Yeah,
1: definitely. To do. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, thanks a lot. This has been really great. So thank you. All very righty, much,
2: John. Man. Thank you. And oh, we- awesome.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you so much, man. You're welcome. And
2: We are going to end the episode with my favorite screeching weasel song. Um, Odell, I bet you could take a guess at what song this is.
1: Oh, I'm gonna let you say it. This is your opportunity. <laughs> is it my big moment?
2: I wish I was playing more, even at the blackouts. So I could just say "Romantico" again.
1: I just like <laughs> well, saying we'll "Romantico." Well, say it. We'll say it with the exclamation point at the end. <laughs>
2: okay, so my favorite speech of Weasel song, and this is, and this goes back to me saying, you know, the lyrics aren't just surface. This song has a deep meaning to it. Is the science of myth? Ah,
1: yes. Kidney. <laughs> <Hiddity. laughs> Question, believe that you hope you're not alone But you ought to realize
3: that every myth is a metaphor, a metaphor. In the case of Christianity, Judaism will exist for me The spiritual matters are enslaved to Hey!